All right, I guess I'll just uh, come back up and we'll just keep studying together if that's okay. Acts 1 and 2 is where you need to be, right back there in Acts 1. And we want to take a look at the first words that Peter said. What you've seen so far in our study is that there was a lot of energy focused in on this one sermon, this sermon that we know really well. There's a reason why we talk about Acts 2 and Pentecost and Peter's sermon. I mean, think about everything that went into it. These great promises Jesus had made and the tongues as of fire fell on these guys and it drew up a crowd and they started speaking in other languages, ultimately work miracles. And so what we did in the first session is we found ourselves there in Acts 2, 14 through 21, where everybody's just listening. What is Peter going to say? And he starts talking about Joel. We mentioned that in verse 17. He talks about how the Spirit's going to pour forth on all mankind. It's this incredible event. But what I find interesting is all of that, all of that was designed to say something. And I want to ask you if you believe what it says. All of the the event, the sounds, the sights were meant so that there was one message from the Old Testament that had been just waiting, kind of hibernating so that it could be released as the beginnings of the church. And so I want to talk to you about that, and I'd like to begin in the form of a question. And you can just nod on this, or shake, or scowl, or raise an eyebrow. How many of you believe, do you believe, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Who believes that? Everyone who call, oh, we have a mixed, we have people going, I'm not moving my head in any direction at all. (laughs) Peter said in verse 21, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you do not believe that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, my first line of evidence is slower reading. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now you might say, well, that's drawing from Old Testament. It's, it's Joel language. It doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means and etc. Well, just hold your finger here. We're, we're definitely going to be in Acts 2 today and just head over to Romans with me. Let's note that it wasn't just Peter, but it was the apostle ultimately to the Gentiles, Paul, who also quotes that text. And he says to them, let's begin in verse 9 of Romans 10, Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I believe that too, by the way. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, I also believe that, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. I guess I could ask you that question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that whoever believes in Jesus will not be disappointed? For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Abounding in riches for all. Who, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be Saved. Now, as I ask that question and you're thinking through where is he going with this, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just telling you that what the Bible says is true. But I'm also trying to get you to think about the fact that we are suspect of what Scripture says at times. Because people, you say, well, but there are people in the world who use that phrase. 
And they don't mean what we mean. Look, I'm open to that. And what I want you to see to to help you understand here is in Romans 10, even after he said, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the next four verses, he kind of indicates that that's going to need some explanation. That as a statement on its own, it can be misapplied. And you know that that is true, that it can be misapplied. And so in the text, it says this. It says, whoever, verse 13, I'm still in Romans 10, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He's indicating, look, preachers need to come. Apostles need to come. Teachers need to come. And they need to show you what it means. But folks, it's true. It's true. And the Bible says it. The question is what it means. Now, I posed that question at Lindale earlier this year because we have these billboards everywhere. Like They're everywhere. I took this one on the side. Well, okay, I was still driving, but I took it on the highway. And we have them in right by our church building. And I want to ask you some questions. Uh, First of all, going to heaven. I'm interested in that. You're interested in that. Everybody wants to know if they're going to heaven. He says, if you want to go to heaven, it's as simple as ABC. You need to admit that you are a sinner Believe that Jesus is Lord and call on his name and you will be saved. Who believes that? I believe all of that. All of that is true. Now you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute now. There are people in the world who misuse that. There are people in the world who, when they say admit, they don't mean to turn from their sins. They just mean to say that they sin. There are people in the world who say, well, belief for them is belief only and and demon-like belief. And there are people who think calling the name of the Lord is a sinner's prayer. Yeah, that's true. There's a mess in the world, but it doesn't mean it's untrue. It means that it needs to be understood, Romans 10, through the revelation that has been given. And similarly, go back to our text in Acts chapter 2. You know what I appreciated about the audience of Acts 2? Look back in Acts 2 and verse 12. In Acts 2 and verse 12, when all this incredible stuff started happening and they believed it, but they didn't understand it, they asked an important question. The question was, what does this mean? That's what we need to spend our time on today. I'm not going to spend the next 30 minutes proving to you that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It says it. But what does it mean? Now, why did I set it all up that way adversarially and push your buttons? Because I think it's weird that we disagree with a lot of religious friends when they're saying the right things. Like somebody says a right thing to you and you go, nope. They go, he who believes will be saved. No, 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 no. I mean, Jesus said, well, if you call on the name of the Lord, then the grace of God will be upon you. Well, I don't think that's that's what the Bible says. I think we start to sound a little bit ridiculous, if I can talk to just our people for a moment. By calling truth error because the person stating the truth doesn't understand the truth that they're stating. If it's true, let's say, you know what? That's right. He who believes will be saved. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But can we, we agree, but can we, can we find out what it means? That's the difference, isn't it? What people believe that the truth means. And by the way, that's not just out there. That happens in here too. Where we both quote the same verses, but we have a different understanding of what it means. And one of us is probably right and one of us is probably wrong. But we have to get into the book and find out. 
So here's what I'd like to do. I'm just going to operate on the premise right now that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, there was this unbelievable, emotional, supernatural event that culminated in that. But what happens next is, go to Acts 2, is Peter says, let me tell you what that means. And unless you believe what it means, you don't believe it. How's that? Would that, would that make you feel a little bit more comfortable? Unless you believe what it means then you don't really believe it. I think that's a fair statement. That's not how I would open a conversation with someone, but it's fair. What does it mean? Well, I'm going to read Peter's sermon. It might sound like it would take a long time to read someone's sermon. You know, for the preachers in the room, we don't want you guys to know that sermons in the Bible are like 15 minutes long or less. Did you know that? You're not supposed to know that. Peter's sermon is about four minutes long. Once we pick up in the main of it in verse 22, we extrapolate that out to 40 minutes. But I want to read his sermon, and I want you to think about it. Here's what happens, verses 22 and following. It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he starts working prophecy. For David said, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because, David said, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow my Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, David looked ahead, and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we, we, you mark those, are all witnesses. Only a few more verses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, this is the last verse of the sermon. I want you to note a couple of things right now. They may make you a little bit uncomfortable now, but you'll be fine. The sermon's almost over. We've got one verse left in this sermon. I want you to know that he has not told them to do anything. Did you notice that? I want you to go back through the sermon. We only have one verse to go. And I want you to circle the call to repentance. There was none. I want you to note the necessity of baptism. I don't even think that there was a gospel sermon and baptism was not mentioned. And what is more heinous than that, perhaps, is that there was no call to invitation. Have you ever heard a gospel sermon at the end that didn't say, for all who want to come forward as we stand and sing? He doesn't do that. Here's the end of his sermon. You ready? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Sermon over. Like he leaves. He stops. Here's what I want you to get. A couple of things. A couple of things that we need to be reminded of. 
The greatest gospel sermon maybe ever preached outside of Jesus' words himself. The one that changed the world, that started the church, was five minutes long and never told anyone to do anything. It devoted all of its literature to one thing that I'm convinced Christians need to remember and is often overlooked. He committed his entire sermon to getting people to believe that Jesus is the Lord of their lives and the Messiah sent to save them. Let me tell you a little bit about our five-finger approach to salvation. What, you guys know what it is, right? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. It's a lot of hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. We're starting in the wrong place. If we're starting with, you need to change your life, and you need to repent of your sins, and the water is ready, and it's warm. Okay, it's not exactly warm, but it's there. <laughs> the gospel call does not begin with your behavior. The gospel call begins with the truth that Jesus Christ has the right to be the Lord of your life and that God sent him to save your soul. Now, that's two things that are really interesting. Most people in the world are very interested in Jesus as Savior. They're not so interested in Jesus as Lord, but he has the right to be both of those. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord because they believe he's a Savior, but they're not calling on the name of the Lord to give him lordship over their life. I don't care how many times you're baptized, you're not going to heaven. We need to spend more time developing belief. In fact, uh, I've got, how old are you? Uh, 16? 17? Oh, all right. Look, I've got some teenagers at home. I've got some young people that I work with. When they make mistakes, we typically sit down and say, why did you do that? What did you do? What do you need to change? My children are so annoyed with me now because when my son does something he shouldn't do, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to ask him this question. Luke, what do you believe? I don't want to know. What you, let's not talk about what you did because what you did isn't going to help or hurt you. What you do next isn't going to help or hurt you. I want to know, what do you believe about Jesus? Tell me what you believe. Do you believe? I'm afraid in the church we've got these kids and we're growing them and, and we want them to do all these things and lead all these. And, and at the base, I don't know that they really believe that Jesus is the Lord of their life. This whole sermon is designed to help us understand upon whom we, I don't care how you call, if you don't know upon whom you call. And so the sermon, and I know our formatting is off to just a little bit, but our, our entire sermon is getting people to believe who Jesus is. And he does it in several ways, and I just want you to see it here. You probably know it pretty well. He says, all right, I'm going to give you four reasons to believe that Jesus has the right to take control of your life. And by the way, everyone who lets Jesus take control of their life is going to heaven. Like, I don't, I don't care where you've been. If you decide that Jesus has the right to direct what you do on Fridays and what you do on Sundays and how you live and how you think you're going to heaven. The problem sometimes is we get very works oriented. You go to heaven if you do these three things and you don't do those three things. What do you believe, man? What are you convicted about? We're not going to get to heaven because we do three things and we don't do three other things. We're going to get to heaven because, verse 22, we believe that Jesus is a miracle worker. I believe that Jesus attested by God through walking on water. 
I believe that Jesus healed someone when they just touched the corner of his cloak. I believe that there's a spiritual demonic world around us and Jesus cast those demons away by his very spoken word. I believe that there was a dead girl, dead, laying there and he called her spirit back and she was raised. And all that's just in one chapter. Man, Luke 8, like it's all over the place. I believe that Jesus worked miracles. And so the first thing he says is, here's not what you need to do. He said, here's what you need to believe. You need to believe that Jesus works miracles. You also must believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I mean, what's your belief? I wish we could have just a total transparency argument here, just like total 100% transparency. And I could just hand out a little three by five card to everybody here. And I could say, I just want you to write down a number, zero to 100. Right now, as God is your witness, how confident are you that Jesus defeated death and that once you die, you can defeat it too? To the extent that that number is not 100, the devil is at work in our lives. You say, well, but I go to church, though. Who cares? I live a moral life. If you don't believe, what good is all? This is supposed to be an extension of our belief, not a replacement for it. I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's his big argument. Verse 24, you put the man to death. You tried to kill him, you Jews, you stiff-necked Jews. But God raised him up again. David prophesied that his body would not undergo decay, verse 27. And in verse 31, he looked forward to God raising him up again. In verse 32, God did raise him up again. And we, these Holy Spirit-inspired prophets that we studied this morning, we're witnesses of it. We saw it happen. We didn't just see him raised. We saw him, verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God. Do you believe that? Start asking your kids that. Why'd you do this again? Save it. Tell me what you believe about Jesus. Who is he to you? What's going to happen when you die? What do you believe will happen? A third thing, of course, is prophecy. And I like prophecy because maybe there's somebody listening to this right now going, you know, my belief really, I do need more belief. But, you know, like I didn't get to see the miracles. So how's that going to help me? Or I didn't see the empty tomb. So how does that help me? Well, the evidence of the New Testament is helpful. But you know, why I like prophecy. Prophecy is still here. And I like that. He used prophecy a lot. In prophecy, he said, look, David said, well, first he said, Joel said this, verses 17 through 21, and then it happened. David said this, verses 25 through 28, and then it happened. And all throughout the New Testament, there is prophecy. Did you guys know that 200 years, that's a long time, 200 years before Jesus was born, the entire Old Testament had been written, collected, translated into the language of the day and put in a library. Did you know, who knew that? Who knew that 200 years, it's okay, who knew that? I wanna know know if everybody, did you know that? Did you guys know that? 200 years before Jesus was born, 150 at the closest, the entire, thank you, thank you, Alexander the Great for your work in the name of the Lord. But he accumulated that and he wanted to translate it. So anytime the Old Testament says something that's right on the nose about Jesus, that's prophecy. That's not, well, the Old Testament was probably written by Peter. The Old Testament was probably written later to make it all sound good. It was done, written, copied, recorded, finished 200 years before Jesus was here. And, and I think that every Christian needs to have a few of those in your back pocket. Like right now, could you sit down with your, with your child, with your grandchild and say, look, I know you're struggling with your belief. And don't just say like, just keep coming to church. It'll be okay. Without belief, it won't be okay. 
We got to work on the belief. But you know, I've told my daughter many times, she's 20 now, I said, if you ever decide to leave the faith, you're like, Dad, I don't believe anymore. I would say, you know what, I'll go with you if you want. But you're going to have to explain this prophecy business to me. How did all of those dozens of specifics come true in one man when even an atheist would admit that it existed before he was here? I think every Christian should have a few of those in their back pocket, but I'll give you a little tip if you want to cheat, cheat. It's Matthew chapters 1 through 4. Did you know in Matthew 1 through 4? Matthew's really interesting in his writings. All of his letters have these little segments to them, like a a segment on miracles and a segment on parables and a segment on preaching. But his opening segment after the genealogies is telling the story of Jesus' birth through prophecy. A virgin would have a child, prophecy. He would be born in this city. He would live in Egypt. The babies would get killed. All of these he tells it through Old Testament prophecy. Prophecy is important and it's powerful because it establishes our belief in Jesus. And then one more thought here in verse 33. He says, look, he was the miracle worker. He was raised from the dead. The prophecies are fulfilled in him. And then in verse 33 of Acts 2, he says, he also poured forth that which you both see and hear, which means the events that were happening on Pentecost, the actual Pentecost events also established belief. Now, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me show you something interesting so far. So far, they've just been going like this listening. And he's not told them to do anything. You can't tell people to do things in the name of Jesus. You can tell them who Jesus is. And he culminates by saying, Jesus, verse 36, is Lord, he's authority, and he's Messiah. He's Christ. He's the one sent to save. And then as a result of that, they believed and they began calling on the name of the Lord. How did they do that? Look at the text. Verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and they asked a second question. Two questions in Acts. First question's in verse 12. What does this mean? That's what it means. Jesus is Lord and Christ. Okay, I believe that. So now, what shall we do? Hey, great question. Good question. What shall we do? And that's when he comes back and he says, you must repent of your sins, the sins that caused his death. In the text in Acts 2 and 37, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and the promises for your children and the promises for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will what? Call to himself. How did he call them? He called them by preaching belief in Jesus. He called them. And they answered that call and they asked what to do. And the answer was to repent of sins. Now, Jesus had been saying that for a long time. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth when his ministry started in Matthew chapter 4 was repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But listen, they're not repenting because Peter told them to repent. They're not repenting because it's some action that they need to take in order to be saved. Yes, it is an action. But what they need to do is believe that Jesus is worthy of their lives. And once you believe that Jesus is worthy of your life, you're not going to want to live contrary to Jesus. And so they ask for repentance. And in Acts 3, in the second sermon that he preached in Acts 3, repentance comes up again. In Acts 3, in verses 19 and 20, we learn what repentance is. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. So calling on the name of the Lord includes repentance. There, now we're getting into more comfortable territory. We're like, okay, now this thing's getting back on the rails. Calling on the name of the Lord includes repentance. It does. 
just not sure that we're teaching it like we should. Repent because you believe and repent for no other reason. Repent because you believe that Jesus was worthy to live and yet your sins caused his death. Your sins caused his death. And if you're someone who's fallen away from the Lord, Hebrews says your sins are like taking a mallet in your hand and driving nails back through the arteries of his wrist. I can't do that to Jesus. I believe in him. Now you're ready to repent. Repentance is an extension of belief. Calling on the name of the Lord is repentance because I believe. And then, of course, yes, absolutely, we're going to be baptized. By the way, the cooler the water, the longer you remember it. Proven scientific fact. (laughs) Proven fact could be a big day for someone. If you need to be baptized, though, please understand. I hope I'm making this point clearly. It's not... Certainly, we know you believe, so let's forget about that. Are you ready to repent of your sins? No, I want to know what you believe. Do you believe that Jesus will save you from your sins? Do you believe that he defeated death and that you're going to die and that he is your only way to defeat the penalties of your own mistakes? Like as a result of that in Acts 2, they're like, what do we do? And Peter said, he didn't say, just raise your hands in the air. He said, repent and each of you be baptized. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, by the authority of Jesus Christ, in the wording of his will, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know what? It worked. There's not a lot of debate in Acts 2. There's not a lot of, well, but how does water how, how does water work? How, why would we need to do a thing? There's no argument. In verse 41, it was just those who received his word were baptized. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. If you need to be baptized, but you're wrestling through all the semantics of that, like what, what does water have to do with that? And why would I need to do anything when it was my actions that got me in this mess to begin with? And, and is this just a local church thing? And, and why does the preacher keep mentioning? Look, you're not asking the right questions. Those are all the wrong questions. The right question is, do you believe in Jesus? Because Jesus said in Mark 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Is that good enough for you? Yeah, but at our church, no, you're not, you're not hearing me. Is that good enough for you that the Lord of your life said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved? What about the fact that Jesus did it? Does that have any significance in your life? You know, Jesus never really asked you to do anything in your life that he didn't do first. He's the best. Jesus is the best. He's not going to ask you to give your life to God. He gave his life to God. He's not going to ask you to die with courage before he died with courage. Like every, there's nothing he wants you to do that he didn't do. He wants you to be baptized because you believe in him. And you believe in what he will do through it. And he went ahead and was baptized. People say, why was he, why was he baptized? I'm going to let Stephen. Y'all get Stephen to preach next week. And I want him to preach on why did Jesus need to be baptized? You know what the text says? Anybody remember what it says? To fulfill all righteousness. Because it was right. Because it was right. Those who should be baptized today are those who believe in the name of Jesus, and so they do it. I almost feel like there's too much emphasis put on the action itself when the action is the extension of the true nature of salvation, which comes by believing in Jesus as your Lord. 
Now, we can add a verse that everybody in this room is really going to like. Go to Acts 22, please. Acts 22 and verse 16. Remember, Saul of Tarsus was living in sin. His conscience was clear, but he didn't believe in Jesus. His conscience, he was doing a lot of what he thought was right. He just didn't believe in Jesus. And so Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus, and he appears to Saul and changes his life. And Ananias comes to him and preaches baptism to him. And what you'll find in verse 16 is this. He says, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Hey, that's significant. Calling on the name. Somebody says, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Does it mean this? Yes. This is a good beginning. I'm a big hand person. Yes, but you can't say, I believe in everything that you're about without repenting of your sins. Because everything he's about is you repenting of your sins. You can't say, I'm calling on your name, but I won't be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Because calling on his name means being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins because he taught us to it. And Acts 22, 16 is right there, isn't it? Be baptized, washing away your sins. What are you doing while you're washing away your sins? You're calling on his name. Now, if somebody wants to actually like say it while their mouth goes under the water and like bubbles come up, I'm okay with that. But it's not just the mouth. That's the point. It's not just the mouth. Belief is not just the mouth. That's where we are in our world today. You know, belief is, I believe, I confess. The mouth is great, but calling on the name of the Lord is more than just your mouth. It's also more than just repentance of tongue. It's repentance of body, isn't it? Baptism isn't just calling upon the power of his blood. It's putting your body in the water and it's submitting not just your tongue, but all of you. Your whole vessel is submitted to his will in baptism. Those who need to be baptized today need to understand that it is calling on the name of the Lord to do so. Now, as we finish this, we know, and I'm going to kind of abbreviate this just a little bit as we get near the end here. In Acts chapter 2, we know what it means. It means that our lives have changed, that we're continuing in service to the Lord and to Christ. And so let's read about that just a little bit. In Acts 2 and in verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we move down, verse 41, we see that 3,000 did that. And then verse 42, this sets up our final study, which will happen in a little bit. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, here's what's really interesting about calling on the name of the Lord. Calling has the term ing on it. I like ing words. I do a little podcast at home and we're always putting the ing words in there. Like it's not a thing that happened, it's a thing that's happening. You didn't call on the name of the Lord. I say, when did you call on the name of the Lord? Well, 1997, it was a cold and rainy afternoon. Okay, no. That that was part of calling. Being baptized was a part of calling. I don't want to know when you called on the name of the Lord. I want to know, are you calling on the name of the Lord? It's an ING, it's an action term, and it's ongoing. They never stop calling on his name. In verse 21 of Acts 2, it shall be that everyone who calls, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they called by believing, and they called by repenting, and they called by baptism, but also they continued to call. They never stopped calling in verse 42 and they continually kept reaching out and doing it. It's like when Jesus said, he who asks receives and knocks and seeks. Those words mean he who keeps asking and who keeps seeking and who keeps knocking. It is ongoing and it is all the time. And so listen, 
People say you must remain, Revelation 2.10, you must remain faithful in order to be saved. That's true, but be careful with the language a little bit. You must remain faithful to be saved. Why? Because your faithfulness warrants salvation? No. You must remain faithful in order to be saved because your faithfulness is an indication that you never stopped calling you just kept calling on his name and you kept living it and loving it. Go to Romans. I'm going to finish this thing in Romans chapter 10. You guys have been great. And for the the full hour of lecture I plagued you with yesterday after you'd had a big lunch, I may let you out early for the class. In Romans chapter 10, there's all kinds of debate about this text, isn't there? We debate with our religious friends. Our religious friends say, well, Romans, it was actually one of our references on that billboard. Romans 10:9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we're like, no, no, that's not, it is true. But it is an ongoing calling. Read it with me again, verse nine. Let me ask you something. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you never stop confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord, do you think that's a good thing? If you believe that God raised him from the dead and you never stop believing that God raised him from the dead. If in your heart you believe and you never stop believing and with your mouth you confess and you never stop confessing. And you believe, and it continues, and you call, verse 13, on the name of the Lord, and you never stop calling. Are you going to heaven, yes or no? Oh, yeah. Every single person, listen to me carefully, everyone on the face of the earth who believes that Jesus has the right to rule your life, and you never stop believing who seeks to turn from their sin when they face it and you never stop turning, who is baptized in the water, which is a one-time event, but were you with us yesterday? It represents the death of an old life and you never stop crucifying that old life. You keep it in the grave and who lives faithfully and never stops. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Please stop disagreeing with your friends who are saying the truth. And spend more time trying to help them understand the transformational, ongoing, living way that it leads us all to heaven. What do you believe? That's the beginning, the middle, and the end of every argument of faith. I'm going to let you guys out a few minutes early. Thank you very much for your attention in this study. I appreciate it.